The following is presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman is. She won't speak unless it's something worse singing. Don't play the girl, take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way, her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxurious thing. Carries herself like the cutest, most prettiest thing you see this side of the bay. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, why the enemy of my enemy is still sometimes not really my fucking friend, we cover it all. We know that no matter where you are, It's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99, because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. Our guest this week is an award-winning feminist activist, a writer, a speaker, and a podcaster. She is the vice president and executive editor at Penguin Random House. As the former director of the feminist press at the City University of New York and the former VP of programs at the Women's Media Center, she has been a leading voice on women's rights issues for over a decade. She currently hosts the Anthem award-winning podcast, Ordinary Equality, where she deciphers the future of abortion access and explores the stories of survival and resistance in a post-Roe world. Please, please, please welcome to the pod, my homie, the amazing Jamia Wilson. Hey, Jamia. Hey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be with you. Delighted to be on your wonderful podcast. It's literally the joy is mine, I have to say. Look, I got to start off just with a question that we talk about a lot. And we talk about it a lot because it needs to fucking be talked about. Mm. Now, contrary to popular opinion, we are still very much in a pandemic. (laughs) And not only are we surviving Miss Rona and all her cousins, but now her in-laws have showed up and uh, monkeypox is on the scene. (laughs) So (laughs) I got to ask you, what has your quarantine life been like? And have you developed any unique habits live and direct from Miss Rona? Thank you so much for asking and raising this. So this has been a really, really challenging pandemic for all of us. It's been a collective trauma and it's also brought lessons for me, lessons around trusting my own intuition and moving past gaslighting. I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of generational traumas considering myself to be a cycle breaker in a movement way and a familial way, you know, and a lot of different ways. 
But then really thinking about how I've had to really learn to ground myself in what is my truth, what I know to be right and to govern myself, even if the government's not doing what I think aligns with those values or the people around me, or even if my doctor isn't aligned with what I know is right for myself and my body. And that's been the biggest takeaway I've had throughout this experience. The consistent through line has been really learning to trust my own instincts and my voice and really learning that when I haven't done that, there have been repercussions that mind, body, and spirit wise. And I say that because I'm knocking on wood now. You never know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Rona's out here coming for next every day. And I have not yet met her. Okay. But I've dodged her (laughs) with a bob and weave for a really long time. And um, she came upon this household and grabbed my husband. (laughs) And um, I was considered by some people in our family and other friends to be ice cold because I, as soon as I found out that, um, I was negative and he was positive. Got him a hotel <laughs> and where? <laughs> yeah. Not in this house yes. where we realized that, you know, he was not in danger. He had a mm-hmm. place to stay. We could get him with food. We knew he was in a mild situation. When all of that was assessed, I had him have his own little retreat at a residence inn up in Westchester. <laughs> and okay. there were people in our lives who just thought that that was really callous and cold. Um, And so that was an interesting experience. But the way that I saw it was actually a real moment of personal growth Mm. and strength for me and setting appropriate boundaries because my grandmother had passed from COVID a few months before, which I found very triggering due to other grief that um, I had been still dealing with. But then also... I am high risk because I have other comorbidities. And I just felt that, yes, this kind of goes against every sort of caretaking um, mule of the world instinct Mm. that Mm. I have for myself and what I've been conditioned to do to always kind of put myself last. And what I'm going to do right now, now that I know you're going to live and (laughs) it's mild, is to send you off to eat all the things you don't eat when I'm here and quarantine away. And so it was a kind of a a really interesting moment because we both won. He said, you know, I would love to do this every year and not have Rona while doing it, (laughs) but just have an excuse to go off the grid for a while and play video (laughs) games and make music in a hotel. And for me, it just really was a, a really important, profound moment to say, there's so much grief around me. There's been so much illness. I really need to protect my perimeter. I hope mm. you understand. Mm, mm. <laughs> so I love that was this. a learning moment. <laughs> I absolutely love this. First of all, shout out to you for you. Um, literally like taking care of yourself, like literally. And that caretaking instinct um, should always be applied to ourselves as well. And as women, we definitely know how much we're encouraged to extend it, but never to extend it to ourselves. So good for you. Thank shout you. out to you. <laughs> Thank you. Jamia, this is a question I've been wanting to ask you in particular, um, because I don't have to tell you that we are in a interesting moment in this country. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation right now about the polarization of America, which Mm. I don't love to use that because it's not a new thing. I mean, America 
has been polarized for a very long time. And whenever it feels like it's knitting together, it's almost always over polarization. And so there's something in there, right, that we just need to grapple with. But beyond that, um, I've been thinking a lot about how powerful it is when we are able to extend towards each other and just try to get to know where each other is coming from a little bit more. I'm maybe a little bit of a not so bashful optimist when I say this, but I do think so much can be resolved just by not like digging your heels in about things that don't actually matter. So I am collecting stories about a time when you changed your mind and what happened. And I want you to really think about something that you were like deeply convinced was absolutely right, but then your perspective changed. Mm. So this one's really tender. I wrote about it for um, the now shuttered rookie magazine for teen girls, uh, mm. started by our wonderful leader, Tavi Jevonson. Um, I wrote about it years ago, but I think about that story a lot because I felt very vulnerable when I wrote it. And um, it's because I had a really problematic take about immigration. Mm. And I'm embarrassed uh, when I talk about this story because it was a xenophobic take mm. that was informed by things I was hearing as a young child um, from other people that I was taking on as truth. I think about it a lot because I'm an optimist like you. And I think about it a lot because I changed my mind because of a series of events that I can explain to you briefly. And it led me to think about that same spirit when I'm talking to people who sometimes might be frustrating for me to communicate with or whom I might have had some sort of binary decision-making on whether or not they're a good or a bad person because I don't like a particular view they hold. It's helped me understand the nuances and complexities of how people can develop really toxic viewpoints um, that don't necessarily make them bad. Um, It makes them misinformed. Um, It makes them ignorant. It makes them confused or um, in some cases even coerced into believing things, I guess. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was probably about a tween uh, when this happened. And I was living abroad with my parents, but we would go to North and South Carolina where my family um, reside every summer. And you know, I was hearing at the time that there were a lot of changes happening in that part of the Carolinas around work and uh, concerns about how in the job market, some of my farming relatives who were African-American sharecroppers for many years on that land um, were finding it harder to get um, the top wages in the factories they've been working at for years or in farms because of new migrant workers who had been coming into the area, new immigrants who were willing to work for less. And instead of a viewpoint around, you know, the means of production as I would now look at it now and why, (laughs) who is really the culprit of, you know, why certain people are working for less because they're not organized. They're not in the union. They don't have access to these things. Um, I'm hearing as a child, these perspectives from some of the elders around me about how these people are coming in and taking our jobs and quotes, I'm air quoting right now. Yep. They're willing to do work we're not willing to do and we can't get this X, Y, and Z. And overhearing all that, although I had I didn't have a view or I wasn't having a framed point at that point, I didn't really, you know, know what it meant except that I was absorbing it, absorbing it, absorbing it. And then one day I get a call a couple of years later, still a young woman, 
And I hear that my grandmother had been in a car with her sister, who was my great aunt, very beloved woman who'd had 15 children. So she was mm. seen as the matriarch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 15, right? Every time I say it, it's Ooh, just kind of profound. Yeah. And um, my cousin was driving her, uh, both the sisters, my grandmother and her aunt. Um, and there was another person in the car and they went to go drive them to their domestic work job, mm-hmm. which is what they had done after they stopped farming and they got older for the same family for many years. And on the way there, they uh, were in a car accident where a young woman who was pregnant collided with their car. Mm. And it ended up uh, resulting in the killing of my great aunt, mm. the um, profound injury of my grandmother and my oh. cousin, who also landed in the hospital. I'm so sorry. When this happened, everyone was rocked because these women were the rock of our family and we loved them so much. And there was all of this anger around. I just remember people saying, oh, this is the problem with these migrants. They're here. And they're taking her jobs. And, th- and that girl, because she was a woman, but you know okay. they saw her as a young sure. woman. She was driving. She came out of nowhere. She hit the car. And that's now why we've lost this beloved person. That's now why grandma's in the hospital. That's now why um, my cousin's in the hospital. And um, then it led to, this is why we shouldn't have um, open borders. We shouldn't have um, access for them. Why are we supporting giving access to people who are getting treated better than we are as Black people here? That kind of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And when everyone was kind of swirling around this and surrounding grandma and waiting for them to wake up, the first thing that my grandmother said when she woke up was, how's the baby? Oh, God. She was thinking about how she had seen Mm -hmm. that woman Mm -hmm. was really, really pregnant. Mm -hmm. And that thought that that was her first thought, that just brought everybody back to their humanity. That was the lesson. We all just said, yeah, here we are trying to blame our grief Mm. on people who did not create these systems and these problems. And it just led us to really think about if we had a system where this person could have had access to care, access to transportation that was legit, access to driver's training and a license to not have to be driving someone else's car that she didn't know how to use, all of those things, then all of us could have had what we needed. That would have prevented that tragedy versus the blame we were putting on um the the circumstances that led to this tragic event. So anyway, that's a place that really changed my mind at a young age. And I'm really glad that it did Mm. taught me a great many things. And I think about, I think about them a lot. um, Mm. All the people involved in that. How was the baby? Fine. Mm. Yeah. And I think somehow she knew, you know, Before we move on, I just have to excellently shout you out. Um, This is new-ish, but shout out to the Penguin Random House family for picking a real one. Okay? Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. We're so excited. And, you know, as my my book home, I just have to say shout out to PRH and really shout out to, like, bringing on a real one and making a great fucking decision. 
Good thank for you, you. PRH. So <laughs> thank you so much. I love your book, by the way. I have thank it. You. And thank I you. just, your book was so well done and beautiful. And, you know, I greatly admire you and your editors. So oh, thank, thank you. you so much. Well, Chris Jackson is also a real one. And he's going to be happy to know that I just started working on number two. But we'll Woo! come back to that. I can't wait to hear about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Congrats. Well, it's, it's a coming. So let's start off by talking a little bit about feminism, which I think you might just know just a little <laughs> bit about, you know. Um, tell me, when did you first come to identify as a feminist and why? So, you know, I feel like it's always been in my blood before I knew to call myself a feminist because I was raised in a very matriarchal Black Southern family. My dad was raised by a single mom. And I think that very much shaped his perspective with a lot of sisters. My dad has sisters who are identical twins. He has, and he has other sisters. You know, he has a lot of yeah. women in his life well done. Um, shaping things. Blessings um, on blessings. Exactly. <laughs> and so that, I think, you know, that he had a world in which he was living in where his roles, gender roles, and all of those things were shaped by having a mom who, you know, was at the lead. And then my mother's mother was an athlete at Tuskegee. And she had gone there with a sports scholarship and um, had played high school basketball competitively in track and was in boarding school as a girl at that time in a time when, you know, a lot of Black children weren't getting that kind of opportunity, but also to then um, go off to college and do it. And so that experience of my grandmother being pioneering and having a sports scholarship at that time and playing collegiate sports really impacted how she was raising her daughters to play sports, to get educated, to lead. And that sort of ethos of just seeing yourself as a leader and understanding that you have your own authority spiritually, politically, culturally, Mm -hmm. that doesn't need to be sort of um, foisted upon you by the patriarchy was something that was taught to me in sort of everything that they did. And although we were very religious and are and are religious, it was always about women's leadership in our church as well. So I was really surrounded by this sort of culture of women. Um, I'm also a part of a Panhellenic Black sorority, um, the one that my grandmother and my mom were also in. And I was inundated with all things Alpha Kappa Alpha at a really early okay. age. Shout out, um, shout out. I was in an AKA pageant as a child. I mean, it's just kind of funny to me now when I think about it. And so, so much of, you know, what the D9 women's organizations do is all about women's leadership and service. And so all of those influences really led me to start to just see our natural place and our righteous place as being at the lead of things, um, having ideas and um, uplifting each other, uplifting one another. And then I think when I saw myself on the playground, often being the defender of uh, against bullies, often mm. being the one who would say, you're not going to um, treat this person this way. And you're not going to treat me this way. Um, that when I found that there was a word for it, <laughs> um, I very much uh, gravitated toward it. But I think the the time that came when I officially started calling myself a feminist, that occurred when I overheard men in my family talking about Anita Hill. Mm. And when I heard the women 
saying that they believed Anita. And I heard a lot of the men making excuses for Clarence Thomas. And that's when I learned that I was a feminist because um, I said I believed her. And one of my dad's relatives said, well, what do you know about that? How do you believe her? What do you know about this? And sort of mimicking the things that Clarence Thomas was saying, that he was parroting them. And I just said, I just know I believe her. I just know that I've seen this sort of, you know, abuse of power. I've seen this sort of um, scapegoating and betrayal type thing before as a young woman already. And I just, I just know I believe her. And I, I think I'm a feminist. I think I said that. I think I said it tentatively, like, mm-hmm. I think I'm a feminist. And he said, you can't be a feminist because that's something, that's something white women do. Mm. So that's when I knew. I said, no, I don't think you get to tell me whether I'm one of those. I, I know I know what I am. And so I've been calling myself a feminist ever since. I love this. First of all, we now know that there was no high-tech lynching of Clarence yes. Thomas. And in fact, Clarence Thomas is lynching women across this fucking country. So how about that? Except for, except for Ginny, because, you know, anyways— <laughs> We not going. We not the going. The foot shoulder. The foot you know what I'm soldier. Saying? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But also, um, shout out to you. And that is actually one of the formative moments in my life, too, where my mom brought home T-shirts and bumper stickers that said, we believe you, Anita. So mm. represent and shout out to Dr. Hill. <laughs> yes. Okay. Shout out to Dr. Hill and to your beautiful mom. Uh, I feel, I I just feel our moms are with us right now. That's right. That's right. I want to pick up on this piece that you talked about in terms of um, feminism being for white women. And I, Mm. I, I, I hate to admit this, but in 2022, there are still people saying that feminism is only for white women. And this, of course, like pains me and it also pisses me off, but I do have some compassion because, look, some of the earliest feminists were Black women, as per usual. I mean, we know this. And I'm thinking in particular, right, of this like photo that went viral that has my Mm. friend, Angela Peoples. Hey, boo, hey. Love Um, that photo. She is like casually (laughs) sucking a lollipop while she's at the Women's March, while all around her were white women in pink pussy hats. And I worry in particular right now Given the bad behavior of some white women in this country, this trope of feminism only being for white women is taking on renewed vigor. So what is feminism anyway? And is it, in fact, only for white women? Uh, I'm so glad you asked me this question. I... When I remember seeing Angela that day with that sign. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. when, and that was one of those days, right, that there were so many people who were there who I didn't see because it was one of the most intense days of my life. One of the, you know, I've marched on Washington many times, but this was one of the days, you know, where it was just, there were so many people. And at one point we couldn't move. I, I remember climbing a tree yeah. temporarily to see things <laughs> along with some of the other people because that we just stopped because there were so many people and the momentum was really profound. And what bothers me about the fact that there are some people who believe that feminism is only for white people is that it's an erasure of the history of black women who have played a really strong role in shaping how we understand what feminism is today and specifically how we understand 
intersectional feminism, how we understand global transnational feminisms. And so much of what has been mainstreamed as what we understand as, you know, the modern day feminist movement was really born from queer Black women, several of whom were disabled. People who really understood that none of us are free unless we're all free, as Fannie Lou Hamer taught us. So for me, kind of like when I was talking about the story of how I learned feminism, for me, feminism has always been about Black women and women of color specifically, because those are the people around me, making a way out of no way, understanding that we have got us and we can't go anywhere if we leave any one of us behind. And that's just a principle that was taught in both word and action to me in community. And not just because it is um, something that sounds really nice rhetorically to say, but because as a deep strategic understanding of what is needed for us to thrive and to continue on in a system designed to kill us. And so- that is why uh, I become really hot, as you can tell, yeah. um, when I hear people say that feminism is not for us, because I feel that that is a side effect of white supremacy and patriarchy to make us feel distant from something that is integral to our freedom, that we need to reclaim feminism. Yes, the word feminism itself was born you know, centuries before we are here to describe things that were happening in Europe in terms of the the verbiage specifically. But the root of what feminism is and so much of the action and what is largely shaped of our understanding was born from women of color. And Gloria Steinem herself has said that Black women taught her feminism. And I even think too about, you know, labor movements and how many people in this country don't know that Indian women were leading labor movements long before the labor movements that we've um, talked about led by women um, in this country. And I think a big part of that is about the erasure that patriarchy has created. This is so helpful because I think people still are holding on to some of these old tropes about feminism being primarily about women hating men as opposed to um, women deserving to be treated as fucking human beings. It's really actually very simple. How about we humanize everyone? It's not just about women, right? But if we humanize everybody, right, then maybe we have a chance of getting free together. I have one more question for you. I mean, obviously I have like a million questions for you, but I got one more because I can't give everybody everything. We can't give them (laughs) all the goods. We're just giving you a little taste, but you know, Jamia is out here writing books about Beyonce and feminism. Just (laughs) go get you some. And has written a million, a million texts about activism, how to be an activist, how to be a goddamn feminist, (laughs) and also just making it make sense. So I'm going to ask you a question that's really about writing. So Mm. earlier I let the cat out the bag and I done told people I started working on what I hope is going to be my second book. Chris is going to be very happy about this. I think, I think, but he doesn't know yet. So anyways, (laughs) look, writing a book for people who don't know is um, certainly a process. 
And <laughs> part of me right now is like, girl, what is it with you and diving into book projects while the country's on fucking fire? <laughs> but in some ways, I'm like, that's exactly when we're supposed to be doing that. So being catapulted back to the first time when I wrote a book. And let me tell you about the chaos of this process. Mm. I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I had a story to tell. And I suspect that there's people who are listening who also got stories to tell, especially right now, but they don't know where to begin. So I'd love to ask you, what is your writing process and what is the best advice you've ever received as a writer? Mm, So first of all, congratulations. I'm so excited. I can't wait till your next book is out in the world. I can't wait to read. And I love, I love your book. So just for everyone who is listening, you have to read it. But also... And I loved everything about it. I loved the cover. I loved the content. I loved the trim size, you know, because I get nerdy about the book. Oh, yeah. I just thought it was really well executed. Um, Thank you. So for me, what I want people to understand about a book project is that this is a long form medium. And to honor the medium, embrace the process. Mm. So I often, and I'm someone who kind of came into the work doing blog posts during a time where, you know, you were encouraged to be writing your 250 words fast and get it on the platform and all of that, right? right? Shout out to blogs (laughs) and, you know, working in that and, you know, getting my work, making a living doing that. And sometimes I learned it was sort of hard for me to think about the slow cook to, you know, that you, if you're going to make gumbo, you can't burn it off really fast. You've got to keep it on low. You got to let it simmer. You got to do this. And for me, what I like about the book process is it's like meditation. It's like cooking a really good stew or a broth. It is like, in my assessment, anything that is going to go deep and be on the surface, something that you have to respect the process of, that you have to honor the process of, that you have to bow to it, that you will have some existential moments in oh, on yes. the journey. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> and that you will understand when when the recipe has cooked, right? When you serve it, right? When you serve that book, that the love that you've poured into the actual process of the becoming of it will come through every single word on the page, and that will translate into the love in your readers. And I know this sounds woo, but bear with me. It is very important. It is something that I like to talk to my authors about because sometimes I'll see people just say, well, I've just got to hurry this up. I've got to churn this out. I've got to just do this and I have to do that. And I'll say, hmm, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we could take a step back and think about if you had more time, if you had, you know, if if you had more space, what would you really say? Or if you felt like you could really lean into this and lean into the process, what would you do? And what I found about it is that it is like a meditation. It triggers us because we're in such a fast paced world Mm -hmm. to have the time and space to have, you know, 80,000 words, a hundred thousand words, more than that to really go deeply into something, to move from just sizzle into meat and to really embrace that and to say, oh, I have this whole process, this whole time, this whole journey where I'm going to be able to really go deep and reflect and revise and with each revision come with new truths. And yes, sometimes I'll read that first 
piece and say, oh, all of that is going, but mm -hmm. the, the magic is in this one piece. Or maybe all of that's going, but three books later, something that you left behind will be meaningful then because of something else. Mm -hmm. It's about having the spaciousness to really move past the superficial. And I feel that that's what I feel called to help champion in others. Shout out to the editors in the world. Let me tell you, um, brilliant, courageous, and calm Chris Jackson mm -hmm. accepted 460 pages of my guts and mm. trimmed that thing, honey, down to about <laughs> 220, baby. And it was the best 220 that I had. So this is a miraculous feat. But I'm going to take this advice very closely, which is just fucking write. Just write and give yourself time to write. It may not all make it, but you know what? You will end up with an excellent editor with exactly what needs to be said. And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady just ain't going to do this week. Number one, the CDC finally admits they don't know what they're doing and a reorganization is underway. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read between the lines here and say that under Donald dumbass Trump, he done put a bunch of people in there who were basically trying to keep shit functioning. And finally, somebody came in and said, uh, enough is enough. Y'all better get it the fuck together. And some of y'all probably got to go. Now, like I said, I'm reading between the lines and I have no actual proof of this, but I think it's a solid theory. In any case, this is on the lady don't take no list because what in the entire fuck? It's been two years, almost three of this shit. And y'all been playing games with people's lives. It's no wonder that people feel like they have license to not, I don't know, trust science. Because the supposed scientists ain't had the backbone to defend the shit. Hello? Anywho. Other things Lady just ain't gonna do this week. Liz Cheney losing her re-election campaign in Wyoming. But we not pressed, honey, because that shit ain't really our fight. So look, Lady has been wondering about this for a minute. But with all the other things going on, it's like hard to focus on what they talk about. Yes, Liz Cheney defected, in air quotes, from the extremists in her party to hold Donald Trump accountable for terrorism. But don't you forget for one minute that while we might align on that and only that, it's probably the only thing that we really, like, get along on. I mean, she done voted with Trump about 97% of the time and is aligned in general with his policies. She just don't believe in overthrowing the government, which, to be honest, is like the lowest fucking bar ever. You don't get to be a hero because you don't support extremism. And if we being honest, Cheney, like a lot of these people, waited until it was absolutely dire to have a fucking backbone. So you will be remembered as such, sis. We ain't got amnesia like the rest of the damn country. Also, she probably finna run for president, so there's that on that. What you gonna do then? I'm old enough to remember when we thought Dick Cheney was the fucking devil. Well, because he is. Now, it's just our compass is out of whack because turns out that wasn't the worst it could get. Who knew? <laughs> Jesus. All right. Let's go into some of the things that Lady loves this week, though. Number one, Amazon workers say, fuck you, pay me, and we are all the way here for it. 
Now this week in San Bernardino, Amazon workers walked off the job this week in protest of abysmal working conditions and in demand for higher pay and safety improvements. More than 150 workers participated in this walkout, though the bosses at Amazon claim it was like 70 workers. Now, first of all, solidarity to the Amazon workers. Also, fuck you to Amazon executives. Whether it was 70 workers or 150 workers, that's a lot of motherfuckers talking about, you ain't finna kill me for this damn job now. Hmm. Now, you will recall that Amazon workers been organizing for better pay and better working conditions as a part of a broader effort to hold the corporation accountable for its penny-pinching with workers while raking in billions of dollars in profits. There is a cost, my friends, to getting your shit same day or next day, and that cost is to the people tasked with getting it to you. So don't forget that shit. Other things Lady Loves this week, NBA to shut down games on Election Day so folks can go vote. Now, the NBA Social Justice League announced this week that there would be no, and I mean no games on Election Day, in order to encourage people to go and vote. We 100% love to see it. Now, if we could only do something about that pesky voter suppression keeping people from the polls, you think we could have the NBA sit down with Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger and get them all the way the fuck together, or... Nah, I don't know. It's a thought. Jamia, tell all the people who are listening right now how they can follow your incredible work on the socials. So, uh, Follow me on Twitter at Jamia W and I'm on Instagram at Jamia A. Wilson. And you can find me on my website at jamiawilson.org. You're amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for Lady Don't Take Note. But I will be back next week with a new conversation and some more news you can use. We appreciate you joining us and please let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what you like. And tell us what you ain't going to take no more of. We post ways to do something about things you hear on this show on our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Meta or Facebook or what the fuck ever at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. And... We really, really appreciate it when you subscribe and write us a review. Let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is Bilaterics. This pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. Me? I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, just because somebody who's been doing the wrong thing does the right thing one fucking time doesn't make them a hero. Don't be giving out more credit than is due and more than that than is earned. And also, solidarity to the Amazon workers fighting for better pay and safer working conditions. Do one thing this week to help them out. Send Amazon a note or even better, stop shopping with they asses and deal with the supply chain issues like everybody else. That's right. I said it. 
because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no shit and sis don't respect the sister walk around like a woman is. She won't speak less of something worse saying don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Never luxurious. Love y'all.